Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, it's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy House, and I host this podcast. Today we have Brittany Haas on the pod. Very happy to be welcoming the genius fiddler. Before we get into it, let's talk about ways that we can stay in touch. We have a monthly newsletter, which is the absolute best way to keep in touch. You can sign up at basicfolk.com. You can also follow us on social media at basicfolkpod. Uh, if you would like to make a financial contribution, you can do so. Basicfolk.com slash donate. We are a listener-supported podcast. Anything you can do would very much help. Okay, let's get into fiddler Brittany Haas. She has a very impressive resume. She started touring at 14 with Daryl Anger, recorded her debut album at 17, started performing with Crooked Still before she finished college, and has played on Chris Thiele's radio program Live From Here and done stints in David Rawlings and Gillian Welch's David Rawlings Machine. Currently, she's teaching workshops and classes in between working with her band Hocktail, along with Paul Coart, Jordan Tice, and Dominic Leslie. Their latest album, Place of Growth, is a song cycle in appreciation to the natural elements, which have always intrigued Britney. She's a trailblazer in fiddling and also has an acute awareness of burnout. These past few years have seen her pursuing and obtaining a master's in social work and teaching classes at East Tennessee State University as their artist-in-residence. Our conversation includes a discussion of balance and awareness when it comes to keeping her music joyful. And then there's science. She has a degree in evolutionary biology from Princeton University. Also, as I mentioned, Hocktail's latest album is a journey through the natural world. We talk about the band giving each other the space to be themselves on the record. Brittany is chill, brilliant, and generous. Enjoy our conversation, then go listen to Hocktail's new recording, All in One Sitting. In the meantime, though, we will check out a clip from Hocktail's latest record, and then we'll get to our conversation with Brittany Haas on Basic Folk. Thank you. 
Brittany, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm really excited about this. Me too. Thanks for having me, Cindy. So you and your sister, Natalie, grew up in Northern California, um, Menlo Park, which is in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. I was actually just Googling it right as we got on Zoom and what, what the, where the location was. So a lot of redwood trees probably in your youth. Um, mm-hmm. You do not come from a musical family, which is pretty wild because you and Natalie are such like revered musicians in your separate worlds. What were your parents passionate about? And then like, also how did they treat music growing up? Well, my mom, I would say was really passionate about music and has, has always loved music hearing it. She played a little, she played some piano and was doing that when Nat and I were starting to play. When we were doing Suzuki Method, she would accompany us on piano. And that, oh, cute. Yeah, super <laughs> cute. And that lasted for a few years. And then eventually she was just like, yeah, like uh, it's too much work. <laughs> like I'll just let them, <laughs> I'll just take them to their lessons. And, but she, I mean, she was really involved and really kind of made it possible for us to get where we got. And, you know, a lot of that was just the physical thing of taking us around to concerts and to lessons and stuff like that. So that she was incredibly generous with that. And I think she really loved it too. She, she enjoyed the music scene and being around it and having us be a part of it. So, yeah, I was also thinking about your parents in terms of like, they have two little kids. I know Natalie started a little later than you, but like they have two little kids who are like trying to play stringed instruments <laughs> that must have been a scene because like I I heard you talking that you started playing violin when you were four years old and I was trying to think of like what does a four-year-old sound like when they're trying to play oh my gosh violin <laughs> yeah. probably probably not that great um <laughs> so you started when you were four um at one point I might have like the timeline wrong but at one point you were given bluegrass sheet music and you really loved that. And then you started taking fiddle lessons mm-hmm. with somebody else, but still taking violin lessons. And then your violin teacher was like, your form is becoming really terrible. So she encouraged you to study Scottish fiddle to help you like maintain your form. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how do you remember those early days of learning and how you felt about playing music? And like, when did it start to like click and become fun? or become serious for you? Yeah, I think I was lucky in having the classical foundation because that really helped with the technique um, that I, I basically just had that going already by the time I arrived at fiddle music. So it was, I already knew how to play the instrument and that was kind of in line. And then I could just start taking on all the stylistic stuff from from the fiddle camps mainly is where I was getting that as well as from Jack Tuttle, who was my first fiddle teacher giving me bluegrass lessons. Who is Molly Tuttle's dad, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's an amazing she teacher. She was just on. Oh, great. Talking about her dad a little bit. So great. that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's a Tuttle legend. Um, and yeah, so I was really lucky to work with him and just kind of get the repertoire going. And he was also having me improvise. And then I started going to the Valley of the Moon Scottish Fiddle School, which is Alistair Fraser's camp, the guy that my sister plays with. And... Um, that that was that was really strong in the repertoire in various different genres which was so cool to be exposed to all that different stuff um and and also a lot of focus on groove and rhythm and how that interacts with 
this traditional fiddle music of the world that is most often used as dance music. Um, and then it was there that I met Bruce Molsky and really, really fell in love with what he was doing. And then through him, he was super nice. And I was just kind of obsessed with him and like following him around <laughs> at camp. And he was really generous with his time and he'd sit down and play tunes with me. And then he, he helped me get hooked up with Daryl Anger, who was living in the Bay Area at the time. And he took me on as a student. And I guess I would say when I was like working with Daryl, that was when I had more of the theory side of things. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, in a way, maybe that was that was it becoming more serious. And he also started hiring me for gigs. So it was kind of mm. like a seamless transition into like, OK, now you're on stage. So like you have to know what you're doing. <laughs> like he really right. he really guided me through that because it was a band with him fiddling and me fiddling. So I could just kind of he would teach me what to do. He would show me how to play second fiddle parts. He would let me take the melody sometimes and he ta taught me his chopping technique. Mm. And so it was very much like learn by doing like, you know, here are all the things that we could be doing. And if I'm doing this, then you do that. And if you're doing that, then I'll do that. Wow. One. Lots of stuff I want to get into. So uh, let's talk about the uh, the Valley of the Moon. So like I'm not from the fiddle trad world. Like mm -hmm. I know I know about it from like Lula Wiles talking about main fiddle camp, Laura Cortese talking about fiddle camp. So I hope that like we can come at this with like the perspective that like people who are listening might not understand like what that world is like. So Valley of the Moon Scottish Fiddle Camps run by Alistair Fraser, mm -hmm. which is in its 35th year in Northern California. So you're talking about it a little bit, but can you talk about how this camp has impacted like the type of player you are emotionally and collaboratively? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the more, the, the older I get and the more I reflect on it, just the more um, incredible I realize it is. I mean, I always loved it and thought it was just the funnest thing ever. And it was kind of where I met my whole social scene and just found, you know, people my age who were into this kind of music and just the community spirit of it and kind of realizing how, how that's such a lovely thing to share with people. And you can kind of motivate each other and stay up all night playing music. And so I think I, I got better just by kind of getting into that scene and finding other people to play with that, that were as excited as I was. Met a lot of people, met a lot of heroes, got to study with them, watch them up close. And I think I, I, I like after the first time going to that, I kind of came away knowing that this was a possible life path. I think like that was the first time like being around professional musicians um, mm -hmm. and just seeing that that, you know, like it was like, I love this. So maybe I could do it all the time. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, at the time I was like in middle school, so I like didn't, you know, take off and do it right away. But it, w it was always a huge part of my life. And I mean, I, I think it's most easily attributable to Alistair's spirit around music and kind of how he relates to music because that was the whole foundation of that whole camp um and it's i would say joyful is kind of at the heart of how he connects to music so he's really transmitting that with everything he does and everything that that camp involves which is you know social dancing jamming like running around with your fiddle in the woods like we do like raids where one class like 
attacks the other class with a tune (laughs) (laughs) and like just like silliness and just the the spirit of that being so um important in it um i think yeah i think that that was just like really eye-opening and feeling i don't know i think i also just feel that in his playing you know like it's so heartfelt Mm. and same same with bruce and daryl who are my other main heroes in that era and to this day I feel that when I listen to them and I think I connected to that. And so I always wanted to also be doing that, even though that, that wasn't a conscious choice or anything. It was just mm. kind of like, this music means a lot to me and I don't know why I love it so much, but I do. And it like, it got me there in my heart. So my transmission of it is going to come from there as well. Hmm. Yeah. In talking about Bruce and Daryl and Alistair um, three very important mentors for you. Can you talk about like what it's been like for you to have kind and caring adult men mentoring you as a young woman? Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Um, <laughs> and, like they're all so wonderful, just like really great guys, and I think they treated me as just a young person, not like a girl. So that was a total gift. Um, I've never like thought that I couldn't do anything or I never felt that I was being treated any differently than they would have treated a boy. So yeah, that's just like such a gift. And um, I feel so lucky that they had time for a student like to that degree, you know, like it's, it was very, very much a mentorship. And I think that's kind of unusual, maybe more prevalent in the music world than in other job that you might find even within the arts. I don't know if that's even true, but um, yeah, I just feel really lucky to have had those, like had access to those people. Um, Um, So your sister plays cello. She went to Juilliard, tours all the time, teaches, um, and you and her play together. I saw that you just posted on Instagram about your tour in Europe. That looks super fun. (laughs) Um, How do you think music has added to your connection to your sister? Hmm. Um, I think it's it's really just nice to have somebody that you're related to that you do a really similar thing, you know? Like it's, it's a kind of another level of our bond that we can so easily relate to each other's lifestyles, which are kind of weird, like in the grand scheme of anything that you could be doing with your life. Touring all the time is, is a different one. Um, so it's, it's just nice to have somebody that close to you who knows exactly what it feels like. And then I think when, when we do get to come together and do it together, that's also super special because we have this shared like years and years of studying music in the same places, liking the same stuff, and then kind of diverging in our tastes. But, you know, there's enough common ground between what we each do that it's, it's just really fun to Mm. be able to connect in that way. You both really enjoy working within a community and run in similar circles. So what has it been like to have your sister with you in these musical communities? Like, how do you both carry yourselves in yourselves in these environments? And like, how are you different? How are you similar? Interesting. I think we're both like, uh, so I guess I'll start with the similarities. Like we we're both kind of like shy or like 
I don't know. I think we, we neither of us like wants to be the sole center of attention, which I think kind of positions us in a place to be really good collaborators. And that's um, largely what we've both done. She's done it more consistently with with her duo with Alistair. They've been, you know, touring together for like 30 years almost. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think she started playing with him when she was 19. Um yeah, so I think we, we both enjoy that kind of the the kind of camaraderie of being in a group where the the attention is spread around and that you're supportive and and then you take the I mean, I guess as a fiddler, I end up kind of playing melody more often, although she's fully capable of doing that. It's just kind of like she's so awesome at the backup stuff that 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 mm. is often her role. So, yeah, I think we, we both love to collaborate Um and I think we both have some like typical girl qualities of like perfectionism <laughs> that like, mm. you know, drives you in a certain way. The best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I think as you get older, you learn to let go of some of that. And I think um, as an improvising musician, you also kind of have to let go of that um, on a certain level because there is this whole thing about it it's an experience like when you're playing live even when you're recording like even though that you know there there might be a desire to to get something down that's totally perfect so that it stands the test of time and you like listen to it and you're like yeah that was awesome that was the best solo i ever took but like that it's actually really hard to kind of like manufacture that and and capturing something that is more in the moment and that might have a little bit of like on the edge feeling um is more powerful i think in live performances like that as well you know like it's it's it doesn't matter if you play perfectly um it's more about like the feelings that you're creating mm. so i think like the perfectionism like drives you and like helps you get good and then you can hopefully abandon that and uh you know get more experimental <laughs> you heard it here an argument for perfectionism from Brittany haas oh no podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> just kidding <laughs> Uh, I want to hear more about how you're shy and like how that has worked in with like your stage presence. Like if you'd have to, if you've had to like overcome shyness in order to perform. I don't know. I mean, I think as a collaborator or sometimes a side person, it's not so totally crucial to be like look at me look at me you know because you're you're mm -hmm. kind of you're there and it's about music you know like and i think i don't know i'm sure people have a lot of different opinions on this but i think coming out of a pretty esoteric corner of the music world um mm -hmm. it kind of helps you not have to worry about some of that like crap of like looking just so and like shaking your head and whatever, like swinging your mm. hips or like whatever things that somebody might think is a part of performing. I think I've been lucky enough to have been surrounded by other people who that wasn't their goal to do that, those kinds of things, but more to just focus on the music itself. Um, so I don't think it's been a huge obstacle um, for me. And probably part of that is just that I was on stage before I really had time to be like that worried about it. 
So I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I had like norm. I mean, I, I actually, I remember fear around classical music recitals. <laughs> I remember like, like the whole, like you have to memorize a piece and then you have to perform the whole thing in front of everybody. And I remember like some really grave errors and just like how unpleasant that was, <laughs> like getting stuck in like a loop where I'm like, I can't remember how this song ends, <laughs> like things like that. But I think I just had so many opportunities to perform that I stopped worrying about that kind of stuff. And um, in the settings that I've been in, um, there has been a lot of like, you have to be on your toes because you don't actually know what's happening. Like playing with Daryl is a really great learning experience for that kind of thing because things can change and it, it's like, you have to be listening and reacting. Um, mm-hmm. So I think being in that kind of mindset helps helps you just like focus on the music that you're presenting rather than the spectacle of it. I found this article where Bruce Molsky was talking about how you and Natalie have a healthy approach to music. He said they lead balanced lives and they don't put too much pressure on themselves largely because of their parents. And that article is like, you were like 18 and Natalie was 21. So it was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But how does that sentiment still ring true for you? Um, I think I am on a constant search for balance. I don't know if I have it. I maybe, maybe I used to. And then it's, it's kind of hard, like when you're on tour all the time to find that, um, to kind of know like how to do what you want enough or to find time for that within the confines of a touring schedule. Um, it's, yeah, there's some like great ironies about like being kind of fully free, but also like on a weird schedule where there's a lot of like sitting around Mm. and like waiting for the next you know the sound check or whatever so yeah I think lately I've because I needed to I started I got like old enough that I started needing to have more balance I've like been searching a little harder for that and trying Mm -hmm. to like reestablish something of a routine that I mean yeah I'm sure I did have that like in high school you know because schedules yeah and like people looking out for you it's a little different as an adult um but yeah. i mean i don't have children yet so it's like who am i to complain about any of that stuff i don't know i think you just get used to what what you want to get used to and then hopefully you figure out how to make it work you were talking a little bit about touring with daryl and you started touring with him when you were 14 years old with Daryl Anger, Daryl Anger's Republic of Strings. So how did that first experience of touring impact how you would come to tour in the future? And also, how did your parents feel about you touring that young? They were into it. I think they, they, they knew Daryl and they trusted Daryl. So they were kind of like, okay, like you want her to go there? Sure. And like some of like in the early times, it was like my mom would come along and 
you know, stand next to me at like, because it was a bar and I like, wasn't supposed to be, you know, wherever (laughs) I could only stand by the CD table if I wasn't on stage or whatever. So yeah, they were, they were just really supportive and it was fun. I liked it. I mean, I didn't have anything to compare it to. So like all of it was super novel and, and exciting in a way. And I think Daryl also has an attitude like that where, you know, you could you could see somebody who's been doing it for decades be like, oh, man, another like folk club or whatever, you know, another five hour drive to the next thing. And then you got to get up early to do the radio or whatever. But like he's just like he he seeks out fun and he makes things fun. So I think that was I was lucky to have that be my first experience with touring. You also play banjo. Earlier this year, you released a record called Impromptu Sessions Number 1. What do you like about the banjo, and how does primarily being a fiddle player impact your playing there? Banjo, banjo is so cool because it's like, it's more rhythmic, but you're still, like, the fiddle and the banjo go so well together, and... um, I think being a fiddler, I I know the tunes or I know how I would play them on the fiddle. And then banjo, you kind of like subtract some of the melody notes and add in more rhythm. So it's it's a cool, cool. just, yeah, like take on those tunes. Um, and I, for me, having another instrument is like a, it's a great comfort, I think, to kind of get outside of your own head when you're so, so often just really focused on getting better at your instrument or like doing the best that you can with the thing that is like your main skill set. Um, so it's really freeing to be like, just pick up a guitar or a banjo and try to make music on it and, and not just get outside of your normal thought patterns and hang ups. I have, um, some intense questions about your college experience. So you'll excuse me for diving into this so deeply. So you went to college, you went to school at Princeton because you weren't ready to do only music. And your story seems a lot different from certain musicians and where like, it seems like the path to being a professional musician was all already laid out in front of you. Like you were touring and making records. And it seems like such a grown up choice to set that aside and go to college. So how do you reflect on that choice now? Mm, well, I feel very privileged that I, you know, that was a choice for me. And it wasn't kind of like, okay, like you should just go do the career that's laid out in front of you. Like I could, I could say, I'm going to take a step back from this because I'm not really sure what I'm doing. And I, you know, I've enjoyed studying academics. So like, I'll keep doing that. Um, and in hindsight, I think some of my fears that led me towards studying academics were, which were that I thought that if I went to music school, it might kill my love for music (laughs) and now knowing what I know about all all these friends and students and colleagues that have gone to music school I I think I was wrong about that although maybe not for myself I don't know I think I still kind of struggle with finding total satisfaction and and feeling like not that music is enough because I do think it's it's absolutely enough and it's it's so wonderful and I'm so lucky to have it in my life Um, but like, I don't know, you're, you're talking about balance and just 
I think that is elusive for me. And I think being so deep into something at such a young age and like kind of feeling like this is your path and like, why would you do anything else? But also like how, like you can't cause you know, like you're just on this train and I think there's good and bad sides to that. Mm. And, um, I mean, it was, it was cool to get to study other stuff and just kind of be amongst people doing really different things. But after that, I just, I, I did turn to music. I finished college and then I was already in Crooked Still and just went right. on the road with them. So I kind of like never looked back. And in a way that sort of like feels like I threw away some part of my education, even though I, I do think it's, um, again, a real, a real privilege to have been able to do that. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't regret it. Um, I just kind of wonder, yeah, I don't know. I think music school is fascinating. I just spent a year teaching in one and uh, yeah, I'm even more like intrigued by people who choose that path. And I think it's so brave and cool. Where did you teach? Um, East Tennessee State, ETSU in mm -hmm. Johnson City. They have a bluegrass program that's been going about 40 years now. Yeah, you were talking about, I want to hear more about joining Crooked Still. You accepted the invitation uh, while you were still at Princeton. So could you talk a little bit more about how you made that decision and how it did impact your college experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it felt like a total no-brainer. I was a big fan of theirs. I already knew um, Aoife and Rashad, and I'd actually played a couple tracks on their first album, Hop High. Um, so I knew them a bit, and I'd been in a, another band with Rashad. He was in Daryl's band as well, but he was leaving the band. And yeah, I don't know. I just, I love their music. So it seemed it was a, an easy yes. And they were very um, flexible with my school schedule. So it was you know slightly more challenging than not doing that but i think i mm -hmm. already was feeling such a pull towards music and i was already you know riding the train to go into new york and play gigs with tony trishka and michael daves or whatever you know like going to jams and like seeking that out more so it it didn't seem so crazy to join a band and just kind of have less that. time to hang out on the quad yeah <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i think yeah like I felt like the music people were my people more so than mm -hmm. other communities. So you've talked about that choice to pursue college versus jumping straight into music as a way to not burn out on music and also not going to music school to uh, change your relationship with music. And recently you've gone after a master's degree in social work after you've been extensively touring, performing, teaching, and recording. So can you talk about your experience with burnout, how you like feel it coming on, and what you try to do to not be consumed, and how you keep your relationship to music joyful? Um, I think for me, I think I struggled with that for a while because I got so deep in that I was, um, you know, just all my friends were music people. It was, it was just like, that was my entire world. And I think I, my conception of how you do your career is you fill all your time 
you know, you say yes to everything and you're like, I could totally fly across whatever and like totally get there for a gig on like the next day. No problem. <laughs> you know, Like it's <laughs> kind of like some insane things um, that, you know, younger people take on maybe. And then I think I, as I aged a little bit, I was like, whoa, okay. I'm not sure I can keep doing this. Like I, I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, I think like I, I never stopped like loving music or loving playing music. It's just, I think just the more you know about like specific settings and like what feels satisfying in terms of like what you're creating, who you're doing it with, how you relate to each other, what kind of like, I don't think it was ever about like the level of success or anything like that, but kind of like the, the level of connection that you feel both with your peers and with your audience. Like sometimes I felt somewhat of a lack there. Like, is this really doing anything? Or am, am I just like trying to have a lot of fun? But like, is it meaningful? I don't know. Um, and I think give after, after having time, some time away, which kind of started with the pursuing the social work degree. And then like, as I was finishing my master's, that's when the pandemic happened. So that ended up being like a longer pause from from touring. I mean, I was still touring during the beginning of the master's, like, but it was more like confined to weekends because I had to be at school on Tuesday and Thursday nights. Um, so, yeah, like kind of starting to put some restrictions onto my tour life. I think that helped a lot. And then having more of a break from just doing it all the time and like kind of going inward and just trying to figure out what my priorities are and like what, how I think I can best like contribute to the world via my music. Mm. What's the current status with social work? I did some of it and then I stopped and I still, I like the idea of having that be a part of my life, but I haven't figured out how yet. I found it kind of challenging to find a part-time job that was fulfilling and left me time and space for music mm -hmm. uh, um which i think is just that's just how it goes like you can't get your ideal job immediately when you have zero experience in that field <laughs> yeah um so i kind of and then the that teaching gig came up and i i just went for that but i i do think that having studied that it's it helped me wrap my mind it kind of like just opened my mind and like develop more empathy and more understanding of the world and like how many different people there are out there with super different mm. experiences so i think that's been good for me and i think as a teacher i can use some of what i learned in terms of trying to just relate to people and figure out where they're at and what they need and for my own i think mental well-being like thinking a little bit in like a therapy mindset of like what do I actually need and how do I take care of myself so I can keep doing what I want to be doing yeah totally so in talking let's get to hocktail um cool. but way to go one more question about college okay. <laughs> <laughs> um your degree at Princeton was evolutionary biology you also had a minor in music performance and it seems like the natural world continues to be a big pull for you can you talk about your connection to science and where that intersects with your musicianship? Tough one. Um, <laughs> I would say I'm not. Okay, so I, I definitely can get really nerdy about some of the sciencey stuff, but I haven't exactly fused that with the musical stuff. Like there, there's some like musical 
phenomena that I, I find really fascinating, but I'm not like such a like physics geek or anything about like sound waves and stuff. But I do think that that part of my mind applies somehow, even if it's just like an exacting kind of like the, the like sciency like what is it right is it right brain the part that's more like numbers based like i think that's helpful for mm -hmm. like rhythmic precision and like certain like certain things in music that that are related well hawktail's third album is a journey through the natural world so like I would imagine that there's like expressions of like appreciations for nature through your fiddle. So like how was being able to express your love of nature through what was that like for this record on the fiddle? I think like because, you know, we're an acoustic instrumental band, there's and we're, you know, we're capturing our sounds in a really like realistic way um like together in a room like a converted barn like we all play wooden instruments with strings and bows and plectrums like there's something very natural about that and like the violin it's like so old this design and it's been perfected and it's it's kind of like i don't know like a plant you know where it's just like this is the form that like works for this thing but yeah i think like in a way that like nature and being outside is just like an influential part of our lives and it wasn't necessarily like oh this tune like sounds exactly like a tree but like you know this this is something that like means a lot to all of us and like we could see that theme feeling relevant to how the music sounds and how we want people to feel when they hear it um, and of the album, the band says, Place of Growth is a record with its feet planted firmly in the presence, perhaps a perpetual present. And in listening to you talk about your music and the path it's taken, like through interviews and through us talking now, you seem like a very, I don't know if you're going to laugh at this or not, you seem like a very present person. Hmm. So how do you see yourself <laughs> living in the moment versus someone who's like constantly worrying about the future and worrying about what the next project is all the time. I mean, I think that is, that does take some time to kind of arrive at the lack of worry. I mean, and not that it's gone or anything, but just when you've been doing something long enough that you feel embedded in it and it's embedded in you and um, trying to have less worry about what that means for the future, because nobody can actually control anything you know as much as i might say i want to play with these people or you know i want to have a record by this date like just knowing that it's harder than it sounds to like make things happen and that we're all kind of relying on each other in some ways and um so there's just yeah there's a lot of uncertainties but that's also what makes moments so precious i guess <laughs> mm. It like surprises me to hear you say that you were like worried about opportunities at all because you were getting like, I mean, you were touring when you were 14 and, you know, you've were playing in Crooked Still before you get out of college and you've had all these like amazing opportunities. Yeah, no, I've been super, super lucky. And I think after those, like once, like when Crooked Still was getting to a, a place of like, okay, 
you know, like Aoife needs to go do her thing. Like we're, the band's going to take a hiatus and like probably never tour again in, in the way that we were. Um, a moment like that, I think, felt worrisome or just very, very much like, okay, back to square one, you know, where you have, you have like a mm-hmm. project that's been your, your whole thing. And then, and then you have to kind of, I mean, not redefine yourself, but I think as when you are a side person or you're in a band that's a collaboration, but your face isn't in front or whatever, you're not the singer. There's like a pressure of like, what will be the next thing? And especially as you get older and pickier and you're, you know, you want to make a certain kind of music with a certain kind of person that you get along with or whatever. Like it just, it can feel a little more difficult. Although, I mean, I think we all have hopefully the power to do what we want in terms of like starting a band or, you know, even taking a break and doing something else for a while or whatever. Like just, I think that it took me a while to arrive at that, that that Mm. it's going to be fine. And that actually having time off is always a good thing because you can regroup and kind of figure out like what matters to you and how to be creative. I think you can't have creativity without some free time. So of uh, Hocktail's new album, you said, we have this history together, we know each other. Hearing each other's personalities was a main goal of the album. And you said, I think we did achieve that, giving everybody space to be themselves. So how did you achieve, how did you give each other that space? And where can you hear everyone's personalities, like including your own? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say as, as far as where or how, to, how did we make that happen? Um mostly through the writing um and that was really conscious um which we've been i think headed in that direction and i'm not like the primary composer i'd say like my contribution has been some of the writing um but a smaller chunk of it than paul and jordan so like my delivery of a melody or a taking of a solo would be like more where you hear me coming through but yeah so they Paul especially, he was kind of um, the the like motivator on this album. I think because we were kind of like it was COVID and we didn't really know what our plans were. But he had he had arranged this one tune, Antelope, and it's the second track on there, written by our friend Leanna Johnson, and he just made a full arrangement of that for the band, um, and that kind of spurred. He was like, well, this is good. Like we should make some other stuff so we can you know do an EP or or whatever, which eventually got to be a full album but um so yeah i think he was he he knew that he wanted that that like instead of four people playing like we all start together and we all finish together and you hear only all four of us the, the whole time he was like i need to i need to write it in that there's there's like moments where you're one person or two people and then it switches to the other two people um so yeah just kind of having those conceptual ideas um so yeah sometimes you have to like really write it in or try something like really different so that it does stick out in a way. Hmm. Um, one thing I've noticed about you is that you have like a very chill vibe and laid back personality. <laughs> um, and you, your fiddle playing is like pretty expressive. It can be very boisterous, very surprising. It can also be very chill and laid back. But how do you see fiddle 
as a way to express those parts of yourself that don't always like come out in your personality? Mm, um, I think for whatever reason, like I sometimes find it easier to like get in there, like, <laughs> like be, be a little more like musically outgoing than I would be just socially. And maybe that's just from like all the hours spent playing and spent in social musical situations, like where I've always been like, I, you know, I want to be heard, like, not like I want to take over this whole situation, but just like, if there's solos going around, like I gonna have one. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You hear like people talk about getting skipped over in a jam session for whatever reason. I don't, don't think people do that on purpose, but I think I've, I, I used to think about making sure that that didn't happen. And now it's like a little more just like, we're all equals here. So that's not going to happen. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's an outlet, I suppose. Um, like maybe like like a punching bag for somebody else you know not <laughs> not all the time but I think I think I, I mean yeah certainly on stage sometimes like if you have a strong emotion you can put it you can put it out there um and because it's coming out in music it doesn't sound angry it's just like it's just a vehicle for like transmitting some feeling um I know I'm really partial because it's my instrument and I've been playing it for most of my entire life. But I think that stringed instruments um, have a special expressivity, you know, because the bow just enables you to do a lot. There's mm -hmm. there's so many factors like speed, direction, articulation, weight. There's yeah, there's just like a lot going on there. I think it's similar to a human voice. It just feels like the possibilities are kind of endless. Okay, a little. I've got two more questions, a little bit of a setup for each of them. So in a lot of your interviews, you get very technical about your playing, and I can't follow it because I am not a musician. <laughs> but um, you often run workshops, uh, you teach at camps, you all in Hocktail actually ran your own music camp, and your fans are musicians themselves. Mm -hmm. They're interested and want to watch videos of your playing so that they can learn and it's like a different kind of fan base than a lot of popular musicians, although like I'm generalizing, like maybe people are breaking down like Harry Styles songs. Um, but can you speak to what it's like for you to have that kind of listenership who are like so interested in how you play because they want to play like you? I mean, I guess I think it's cool because I feel very much a part of that as far as time you know like I was them um listening to people that I wanted to sound like and trying to figure out what they were doing um so it's cool it's flattering I guess to 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 be heard in that way and to feel like you're building on you know what you've learned from other people and sharing that so that somebody else can like try to figure out what you're doing and then take it in their own direction so yeah it's just it's it's like life confirming life affirming that's what it's called <laughs> mm. um yeah i don't know i think it's it's great and i i think like we as the members of hocktail are like nerdy musician types so it's cool to attract <laughs> people who are like-minded in that way and i think like what what more could you dream of than 
um, you know, writing some music and then having other people learn it and play it. Yeah, that seems so fulfilling. First of all, I love your style. I love your clothes and your hair. So this is like not meant to be taken in a negative way, but like, (laughs) okay. okay. So to me, it seems like your clothes are more like functional than fashion. Like you're, you like always look cool, like no matter what, but there's this air of like uninterest in (laughs) like your appearance in that way that like further adds to like your chill vibe. And it also seems like the older you get, the less interested you've become. Um, <laughs> like in that Hocktail live video where you're all in the garage and it's cold, I know, but you're like wearing this, like you're, you're, you're warmed up. You're wearing like three jackets and three pairs of pants and <laughs> like fingerless gloves and a giant hat. You know, not to say that you don't wear like dressier stuff or do your hair when you're performing or whatever, but it just seems like you do not give a fuck. Um, thank you so (laughs) how do you how do you approach clothing hair appearance and how does like also like in terms of like how you approach your appearance and in in terms of like if you care or not about like what you look like but also like in terms of like functionality like how does being a fiddler impact that approach Mm. so two two questions in one Okay, I'll start with the fiddler part because that seems like the easier part to answer. Um, yeah. Like, obviously, you need mobility, especially of your right arm. So um, tight sleeves don't work. And then I know, like, some people have like, like I think it actually could work to have some like billowy big sleeves. It probably would look cool, <laughs> but I just haven't really explored that yet. Or like the the tassels probably don't oh, work. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it might be a little distracting. I found that bracelets are really distracting because they can, like, make sound moving around. Um, same with necklaces and earrings. Like, I've done the just wear one earring thing, but I just was like, you know what, I don't even care. That's not worth it. Um, and then I the microphone I use, I, I prefer to play with a clip-on mic so that I can move around. And I've been using the same thing for years and years and years, but the latest version of it that I got has a clip on it. So where it connects to the mic cable has this like hook on it and Mm -hmm. that's been interesting because i think i went back when i was like playing into a mic on a stand you don't have to think about where that's gonna go so i used to wear more like just a dress like with no pockets or whatever and now i'm like Mm -hmm. i i think i wear more skirts because then i can like hook it on the skirt um or have to have something with a pocket or i have to like tuck it in somewhere weird and that that can get awkward so yeah i don't know i've i think i well i was a tomboy and then i think i got a lot like infused with some girliness from various sources like my mom and my sister (laughs) like when I was first playing gigs my mom was like dressing me you know like because I was 14 which I mean I guess I could have been dressing myself at that age but like I think I just like didn't care or like she was like well you're getting up on stage so you need to look nice so like let's go get you a nice outfit and like I wouldn't have chosen I mean whatever I just didn't care I think and then that became my like uniform for for that period of time and then in <laughs> in cricket still like there was another girl in the band so it was like okay like i'll, I'll kind of dress how she dresses and, our like, fashion queen Eva o'donovan is like the best dressed human alive i know and even like back then i'd say her style was a little different but but also great and we would like share dresses and that was fun 
So I kind of think I got like my sense of like what to wear on stage from her. And then, yeah, I don't know. I, I think if I were to go shopping again, which I'm sure I will someday, um, like <laughs> I might like, I might get more like fancy pants. Cause I think that would be like nice to, I don't know. I think about like gender roles a lot because I end up playing with mostly other uh, or not other males, males. <laughs> um, and just like mm-hmm. their, what, what they wear is, I mean, not to say that they they can't be totally fashionable. And a lot of the guys I play with are really fashionable and like do think a lot about what they wear, but they just have like a different kind of palette. Um, so sometimes I think about like not playing up my girliness, you know, and I also just like, like high heels don't work well for me. I need something stable so I don't fall over. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I, I think my mom put the thing in my head about like, you're getting up on stage, so you do need to look nice. And so like for years, I would never like be seen in jeans on stage. And now I'm kind of like, I don't know if that actually matters. Like sometimes, yeah, you can get a little more dolled up if it's a fancy concert or whatever, but I don't know. And then I guess you just kind of sink into like what seems like your your fashion sense. And then you're like, I could never wear that. But like, who cares? You know? Yeah. But you do want to make people feel comfortable, I guess. So balancing it out between nice enough and not too fancy or out there. Mm. It's great. Keep it up. Whatever you're doing. We love Thanks. it. Um <laughs> And then before we go, will you do the lightning round? Um, okay. Yes. Yes. All right. Lightning round. Here we go. Brittany, what was the first song you learned on the guitar? So there's this record that just came out of Ed, Hale- Ed and Ella Haley. He's a fiddler and she played um, mandolin and they sang duets. I learned one of the songs from that. Hmm. Nice. And it tracks. I've never heard of it. So it tracks. Uh, <laughs> Dogs or cats or something else? Mm, as a pet or just as a creature? I don't know. As Chick- a philosophy? Ch- chickens. Chickens. Great. Uh, what is your coffee order? Mm, like, whatever. I don't really care. I, I, I do drink <laughs> nice coffee when, when somebody makes it for me. But, <laughs> yeah, I don't really care. Who is your first celebrity crush? Um, probably Luke Wilson. <laughs> Whoa, like a Royal Tannenbaum situation? <laughs> yeah. Totally. Like a bottle rocket. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're going to not like this question. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Nicest? Cause so, yeah, because there's so many. There are so many. So I'll say Lori Lewis. Oh. I love her. <laughs> what is your favorite podcast? Um, okay, not much of a podcaster, but um, I just listened to the 9-11 one, and I like that. I was on Gabe Kahane's recommendation. Hmm, okay, cool. Uh, what was your first concert? Don't really remember. Probably, like, a orchid, well, I don't know. The, the first concert I played in, quote-unquote, was a Suzuki concert where I, like, had my tiny fiddle, and we was supposed to get on stage and just take a bow with all the other kids my size. But we were late, so I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll count that. Uh, what was the last book you read? Um, I just finished one the other day called Blade or A Blade of Grass by Henry Shookman. It's about Zen. Hmm, cool. Uh, Beatles or the Rolling Stones? 
Beatles. Flying or invisibility? I'm flying. This is the last one. Okay. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? I don't know. I'll say my mom's garden. Oh, <laughs> that's nice. In California, in, in California, she's still in California. Yeah, cool. still in the park. Awesome. Brittany Haas, thank you so much. It's been so nice talking to you. You too, Cindy. Uh, I, you. You're, you're so rad. I'm so into you. you. Back at you. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Focus on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can search on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. Find us wherever you get podcasts or at basicfolk.com. And there's a lot of them that you can check out. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed. And listen to more episodes. Tell a friend. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.